Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wandering Road Podcast. I'm your host Chris, alongside my co-host Dean, and for today's show, we're going to be talking about Slenderman, the origins of Slenderman, and the unfortunate stabbings that occurred because of this fictional character. Before we get started with today's show, if you would like to share your stories with us or even be on the show, please reach out to us at twroadpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear your stories, and we would love to have you as a guest on the show at some point in the future. Again, the email is twroadpodcast at gmail.com, twroadpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we'll get started with today's show. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. So Slender Man, that's that is interesting and for a lot of reasons. When you first brought this topic up to me, I was like kind of skeptical because I always had this idea in my mind that Slender Man was just some kind of like modern, scary, westernized story that popped into our culture the last 10 years or whatever. But then you said you're like, oh, well, actually, there's a stories that preceded the Slender Man that that kind of grew into that. So it it actually does have origins that reach back that are equally as creepy. So I think after hearing that, this is definitely worth exploring. What do you want to talk about first with Slender Man? Like, let's. I guess we should we should talk about what Slender Man is in the modern context. Like, what does it look like, and what does it do, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So. What's interesting about Slender Man is that it's a fictional character that originated as an internet meme in 2009, and it gained a lot of popularity through creepypastas, yeah. if you're familiar with that. I like a good creepypasta every now and then, and we're not talking about <laughs> pasta. It's like yeah. this. <laughs> it's like this thing on like Reddit where people post their creepy yeah. made-up stories. So the Slender Man is described as tall, faceless, humanoid figure with long, slender arms and legs. And he wears a dark suit, is depicted as having tentacle-like appendages on his back. So with this character, it's not really... I don't know how to categorize him. A paranormal entity or like a cryptid type of entity because it was it started off mm. as a meme but then it took a life of its own but apparently there's speculation that the slender man was created based off of an apparent german mythological creature called uh i'm gonna butcher this der grossman or also known as yeah. the tall man so apparently the tall man is supposed to live out in the woods and parents would tell their kids that, hey, don't stay up late at night or their grossman is going to come get you. Don't play in the woods because the tall man is going to come get you. So it kind of, it's kind of similar to, you know, with all these boogeyman stories that you would tell kids growing up when they didn't want to behave. So this Seems like it started off that way. But apparently there was a supposed account from 1702 that describes an incident involving Der Grossman. Now, we can't really say 
if this was fabricated, but this is what the account said. My child, my Lars, he is gone, taken from his bed. The only thing that we found was a scrap of black clothing. It feels like cotton, but it is softer, thicker. Lars came into my bedroom yesterday, screaming at the top of his lungs that the angel is outside. I asked him what he was talking about, and he told me some nonsense fairy story about Der Grossman. He said he went into the groves by our village and found one of my cows dead hanging from a tree. I thought nothing of it at first, but now he is gone. We must find Lars, and my family must leave before we are killed. I am sorry, my son. I should have listened. May God forgive me. So that's one of the quote-unquote supposed accounts of a tall man or Der Grossman encounter from the 1700s. The immediate thing that I think about with that story is it's, I wonder how how um, common that kind of clothing would, would have been back then. Because I know there's a lot, of, like a lot of stories from throughout like older European history and whatnot, where the creatures or the cryptids tend to wear like strange clothes or something that doesn't match with the time period. So it's interesting that he claimed to find a piece of clothing. But the one thing I want to pivot to that's even crazier is if you find a cow dangling, it's kind of funny. It's like, I found one of my cows dead and dangling from a high tree. I thought nothing of it. (laughs) Like, what what do you mean you thought nothing of it? You had a 400 pound cow hanging from a tree. (laughs) Just hanging from a tree. (laughs) See, that's why I um, kind of joke about this in the beginning because like the idea of Slenderman to me was always kind of nonsensical. It it just seemed like a kid's, well, I mean, I take it more seriously now because um, it does have origins that that reach back to like the Grossman uh, story or whatever. So it is interesting. It's becoming more interesting to me. But back then when I just knew of Slenderman as like the modern depiction of some kind of meme or whatever, I just think of it as not as scary as other cryptids. Uh, it just kind of like shows up and like kills. But t- this story about the German uh, uh, man losing his son in the 1700s, I also have to wonder, like you would have to, th- like, I don't know what stories were floating around back then, but this seems like one of those oddly specific stories that it seems like it would take a lot for someone in that time period to make it up. You know what I mean? Like they, they didn't, it'd be like someone who never saw a horse coming up with a idea of a unicorn. Like the idea of a unicorn comes from, you know, someone marrying up some animal with a horn and a horse, and then you have unicorn. But if no one ever heard of a horse before, it'd be really hard for someone to come up with this idea of a four-legged creature that had a long snout and a, and a big horn that looked like a horse, but it was, you know, something they had no idea what it was before. So that's what, what I think about with this story up front. The rumor has it that this was used as kind of like a boogeyman uh, okay. myth for kids. Yeah. Well, then that's a good, that's a good jumping off point but, then to talk about the next portion of, of this kind of story, which is, you know, we talked about this in the the uh, past podcast with the Wendigo, but the idea that it, you know is it possible for people to come up with a story of something in their head initially having no direct connection to things in real life, but then people ruminate on it so for so long and focus on it, think about it, they kind of craft it out in their heads, and it takes on a form of its own, and then it actually ends up materializing in our our realm of uh, you know three dimensional realm and. What did you call that effect again? That was kind of had some bleed over with um, other 
types of theories and, you know, religion and whatnot? Yeah. So first I'll preface by saying that we talked about this concept without even knowing the proper term for it. I came across it when I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the Talpa effect. So that's, that's the name of it. It's called the Talpa effect. And essentially the entire concept is actually rooted in Tibetan Buddhism and is related to the idea that through focused mental effort and meditation, one can manifest an autonomous sentient being within their mind. So if you think about it, let's put it this way to, uh, let's think of a good example. Let's talk about mm. Tolkien, right? The creator of the Lord of the Rings. His characters that he created have such in-depth personalities on their own that when you're reading the book it's like holy fuck this is an autonomous sentient being on the piece of paper the talpa effect takes that and essentially says that if enough people believe in said creation it can actually be manifested and brought into our world into our physical realm. Yeah, that, that's so interesting that we we talked about that without even knowing. I got to say something in jest real quick, though. It's like you were going along with like how this idea we can manifest things with our brain and stuff. And I know that's like an enduring. That is actually an argument in a lot of respects outside of the realm of like creating an autonomous being in your mind. So this is uh, this is specific to creating a being in your mind and having it materialize. But there's also this idea that you know, you hear about people thinking, like pitching the idea of like positivity, thinking about positive and materializing things that you want, like creating. Uh, there's There used to be this old, old school uh, method that I remember doing growing up in school where it's like you, you create, like we, it was a project where I think it was in like middle school, you get this big piece of construction paper and you think about what you want to be in your life, like later when you grow up and what you want and all that stuff. And you cut out pictures or whatever from magazines and you paste it, like everything that's important to you and everything you hope for yourself on this construction paper. And then the teacher's like, okay, like think about how you might progress to get these things that you want. And that's, that was kind of like a really rudimentary crude way of, of the same concept of like, how do we materialize? I really do believe that it, this concept is for real. Like we think about things and for whatever weird reason, things line up in such a way that they play out to our advantages. So like the thing I was getting at with like the just like joking around, you were saying like you manifest this stuff. I was like, okay, $5 million man, $5 million man, $5 million man. Okay. This $5 million man, he's going to materialize. He just walks up to you and gives you $5 million. <laughs> And then he leaves you alone and there's no <laughs> ramifications. So let's manifest $5 million right. man. He'll just walk up to people, get $5 million. And uh, I think his name is um, Mr. Beast. Okay. So he's already, he already exists. He already <laughs> exists. <laughs> Mr. Beast. But going off of that real quick, and we'll get back to Slender Man, that whole concept of your $5 million man, right? It depends on your aspirations. So if you personally have a goal in which you want to receive $5 million up front, let's say you start a business and it's successful, you get an offer for $5 million, there's your $5 million right. man. Yeah. You know, with the Slender Man, this in particular is a specific type of creation that is essentially one particular thing. It looks a specific way. It'll be a specific way. And that's what it is forever. But for people that, like you said, the $5 million man, 
that could come in different right. shapes. Yeah, that's and forms. a good point. I like that. Yeah. So I, I think the the Tulpa effect, if it's real, if because I don't know. I don't know. I'm just being a pessimist, I guess. But <laughs> but if the Tulpa effect is real, I think context of what you're looking for. You know is what would important. be really interesting is if there was some kind of metaphysical scientific argument to because we all like we've had discussions in the past, like focused on science and technology and stuff that we talked about multiple dimensions and we talked about this idea that time is it seems linear to us, but all of the other possibilities of going left or right, up, down, whatever, like the outcomes that are possible already exist. Like everybody knows now this this idea of like like the subatomic um, theory, string theory, or whatever, where something exists in two states at once until you measure it. And I I think that there this conversation of Tulpas and Slenderman and stuff can can be tied in with that because if you can think of anything and everything that is possible within the realm of possible in multiple layers of existence, then who's to say that what however we manifest through thought or whatever doesn't bring it into this reality. So if you think about it this way, like like the like one of my favorite philosophical concepts that I I learned years ago in, in school was it's like I that's why I brought up the unicorn earlier. It's this it's the I think it's Descartes or someone came up with the idea that you can't pull something from nothing. All of our ideas, everything that we know about reality, everything that we know about our space and our surroundings and and blah, 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 has to come from some compilation of everything that already exists. We can't conceive of something that doesn't exist because it has to be part of our reality. So the the perfect example is that unicorn concept. Are there unicorns? No. (laughs) I mean, you know, less like there's no unicorn. There's no magical creature that looks like a horse, but has a, a, a horn and it spits rainbows out of its horn or whatever, you know, like, but what we do have in our reality is we have rainbows, we have horses and we have narwhals or whatever creature you want to think of that has one horn. So even though that unicorn doesn't exist, all those components of the unicorn exist in this reality. So I don't think we can like manifest a physical unicorn, but I think that maybe it's possible that because of all those layers existing, there could be some reality that's not in this reality where some creature did evolve like a unicorn. You know, maybe there was, maybe there is some other level uh, of outcome of of a different like multiverse or whatever, where unicorns did come about uh, through evolution or whatever. So I wonder if it's possible that maybe there are creatures that could exist in different layers of dimensions or whatever that can be brought into for this because like you think about like we think about things and we materialize them but maybe maybe it's the other way around maybe these things already exist and they're kind of like hinting at us and pulling at us and injecting these ideas about them so they can come into our reality that'd be a really scary thought yeah definitely would be and with regards to the Slender Man, what's really interesting is some of his quote unquote supernatural abilities that he has. And after I share that, I'll ask you a question about the ethical aspect of the Tulpa effect. So some of Slender Man's abilities is that he can teleport, he can mind control, he can induce amnesia, and he can distort your reality. And it's said that he has proxies. So that's basically humans that are under his influence oh, to sure. carry out his commands. And these proxies can be individuals how, who have been psychologically manipulated or coerced into serving him. 
his prey, his number one prey seems to be children and young adults. And he's often associated with abducting and traumatizing these individuals. And I want to go back to the discussion we were having about the Tulpa effect, the ethical aspect of it. Because let's say that Tulpa effect is 100% true, that in 2009, this character was created as a meme, but so many people got carried away with it that it eventually came into reality. Now, I think my question is, maybe it's, I don't know, an ethical question, maybe it's not, is should people be more aware if the Talpa effect is real of like what they're doing? I probably worded that really, really terribly. Yeah, but it's like there has to be an an ethical code to it because if the Talpa effect is real, you can't go and fucking imagine up a death claw (laughs) and create this massive lore behind it and then put it all over the internet and expose it to all of these impressionable kids and teenagers that love all this horror shit and then they truly believe it and it becomes incorporated as part of their lives and somehow through some physics or some bullshit this thing then comes into existence in our in our plane yeah there's almost a degree of uh well Dude, I don't know what I don't know what it's like for most of human history because obviously we weren't there. We, but we know now that there are a lot of dumb fucking people around, and um, I feel like that's like right. asking you know uh, an alligator not to try to kill and maim and devour something. It's like it's it's innate in some people, and that 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 actually is what is terrifying. Like thank God or whatever force you want to thank that we don't have we can't acquire that power as easily. Because I feel like if that were true and possible, we'd have a lot of monsters and shit flying around our reality, like suddenly just maiming and killing people. But yeah, I I, I see what you're saying. Like I've heard stories of people who like, I know your favorite game, the Ouija board. Oh, your favorite game in the world, the Ouija board. Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, just kidding. He, you know, Chris, like he, he stays away from that shit, but it's just, it's that, that idea. And I've been like with kids, you know, I had a Ouija board growing up and my friend and I sat there and we like asked questions of it and like, Oh, did you move it? No, I didn't move it. Like you you moved it. And, but in reality, um, there, there are circumstances and there are examples where weird things happen. Like I, my mom has a story about using a Ouija board in the seventies and like weird shit started happening, like lights flickering and whatever. And it could have been like, you know, I wasn't there. It could have been, you know, some, uh, one of the friends setting all this up. And, but there are the, the instances of people engaging in these activities, like not just Ouija boards, but, you know, trying to call up a demon or like try to raise the dead or whatever, like not knowing what you're doing, not knowing what you're messing with. And that's actually like, so I've said this on the podcast before, like I've, I've traveled to Southeast Asia, uh, a few times and a lot when I was younger, but I've had people tell me who were native or like, you know, originally from the country I was traveling in, in Southeast Asia, you know, don't, don't mess with certain things. Like if you see this thing, you know, don't mess with it. If you see like a creature, or if you see some kind of paranormal thing or don't ask for something or en- like invite it into your whatever. So there are people nowadays who do believe that this sort of thing exists. And I wonder if there is a degree of Tulpa effect there, because you have like, say a whole population like Japan, for instance, something crazy, like 90 plus percent of people in Japan believe in ghosts and they just accept it as fact. That's just, it's just a part of life. You know, ghosts are real. They're here. They're malevolent. They're good. 
but they just believe that they're there for sure. Whereas people in like more Western cultures, like you, I would, I think you'd probably be hard pressed to actually find the same amount of people in America believing in such things. So, but the fact that you have a whole country stuck on an island, which is essentially in an island, believing that sort of thing, you have a lot of ghost sightings and you have a lot of paranormal events and a lot of things happening that are unexplainable. And yeah, you can go the psychological route and say, most of these people are are believing in that. And that is setting the stage for people to see things that aren't really there or imagine things or whatever. But I, the Tulpa effect would argue the opposite. It would say that because so many people, and we've said this before on podcasts, like what happens when you get people in a room and they start praying or they start, regardless of whatever their underlying religious belief is, it's been proven or not even proven, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's a strong indication that when people get into a room and focus on something, the same thing, like a chant or a prayer, then weird energy signals, weird things start to happen, detection or whatever, like, you know, whatever instrument is being used to detect it. So imagine a whole country believing in ghosts and and monsters or whatever. And then you, maybe that, like maybe the materialization of the ghosts that come into our realm aren't free and they didn't come here by themselves. Maybe they had to be pulled into this reality because people were thinking about them. I don't know. That's a good example of a Tulpa effect, I suppose, on a, on a grander scale. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the thing with Japan about like 90% plus of the population believing in something. And therefore, there are a lot of ghost sightings and stuff. And that goes back to what I was saying about last episode with the Wendigo and the, the Skinwalker is that if you have enough people believing in it, I think their collective minds, our collective minds brought together are so strong that it can actually manifest something to happen. And if you think about with the Slender Man, who did it appeal to the most? Like it, it appealed to children the most who have the wildest, most rampant imaginations. Yeah. Children do. Now humor me for a second with the concept that our collective minds can actually manifest something. Now imagine let's say hundreds of thousands of children that are on Reddit for the first time and they go to the creepy section and they look up the Slender Man. They run into the story of the Slender Man. There's a picture accompanying it to go with the background of the Slender Man. And you know how kids are. We were kids once. How easy it is to fucking scare kids. Who's to say that that little kid, <laughs> the group of kids, all those thousands of kids that read that creepy pasta, saw the picture of the Slender Man, ha- started having nightmares about the Slender Man, or started seeing the Slender Man in the corner of their room, or the Slender Man poking out of their, their closet, or they see the Slender Man coming out of there from the under of their bed. Well, it may be a figment of their imagination, which probably most of it was, but what's even creepier, like we always say, the one, like the, the percentage of it that is not they're just yeah. their imagination. Here, here's a here's an even scarier thought to tack on to that. Does something actually have to be materialized in this reality, like physically, you can physically touch it in order for us to consider it to be real? Um, because imagine a situation like you're talking about where it doesn't even let's like let's not talk about kids. Let's just talk about like an adult, like let's say an adult sees a monster movie or or something that just really shocks the shit right. out of them. And it doesn't even have to be a movie. Maybe they saw something in the distance. Like, you know, they, they saw what looked like some creature, alien, or whatever coming towards them. They didn't confirm whether or not it was, but it just like it consumed them. 
to the point where they were just obsessed about it, ruminated on it for so long. And then their brain tricked them into thinking that this creature is in their house, in their closet, because maybe they see some lighter flash. Could It doesn't have to be there. Could be in their mind. Could have been like a projection that, that they're hallucinating into their own reality. However, imagine the extra degree that thing, when they see it, ends up killing them. They have a heart attack or they have an aneurysm or some some weird lineup that actually ends up killing them. You have all of the components of that creature that you were so afraid of. You saw it, you sensed it, you had a physiological effect on your body that that thing had an effect on you and it ended up killing you. So those are all the components necessary for something to be, you know, labeled as a real reality, a a component that actually can affect you. The only thing that's missing is it being possibly actually in this reality or not. So maybe that last step of becoming physical isn't that great of a leap whenever you have a lot of people focusing on this sort of thing that it's coming to get you or whatever. And, and for instance, like I, I remember one of the first movies I watched that really freaked me out when I was a kid was Chucky. <laughs> remember that <laughs> Chucky, the doll. Um, if you don't know what Chucky, yeah, one of yeah, my I, favorite I, movies, I would religiously watch that with my friend at sleepovers. And um, I don't know why, like we just love the idea of a doll coming to life. I always like, there's a movie called dead silence that I thought was a really, really good movie. If you, you know, some people shat on it, but I, I always liked movies that had like dolls in them that came to life. And if they were well done, they were, that was always a creepy factor times 10 for me. But I saw Chucky when I was a kid and I actually, I think I said this before on a podcast, but like I had this, I had this like waking dream where I hallucinated coming out of a sleep state and I saw clear as day, Chucky, the doll standing next to my bed, smiling at me like maniacally. And I'm not talking about like I had a dream of him standing next to my bed and I woke up. I'm talking about I woke up. I was coming to a wake state. And for a solid like three to four seconds, I looked right in his eyes as he looked at me from the side of my bed. And when I when I came to reality, like when I came back to fully awake and he like disappeared, even as a kid, I, I realized like, you know, Chucky's not real. It's a movie. You know, I never believed that he was really there, but I do that stuck with me to this day where, you know, I saw him clear as day next to my bed. I wonder if someone who was more more likely to believe, like say Slenderman or something as a kid, you know, you see something, you feel like you're creating something with your mind, and then what's the final leap to getting to that physical state? This is a perfect point to talk about one of the really unfortunate cases that really did materialize from Slenderman, which was a stabbing by two girls that happened in May of 2014, I believe, in, was it like Wisconsin? So yeah, yeah. you, you want to talk about, like, let's, let's dive into this story where like Slenderman actually had a physical effect on kids like we're like we've been talking about oh yeah absolutely and you want to talk about effect on on kids as well before we go into that unfortunate event it, it really doesn't help that there there's a video game about the slender man called slender the eight pages and we were actually looking at a a video from uh conan o'brien who was actually playing the game which is oh so funny. fucking hilarious but yeah it's one of those things where <laughs> The media aren't helping it either to to not let this thing die out. We'll jump right into the uh, Slenderman stabbing case. So, unfortunately, the Slenderman had a direct hand in influencing a tragic event, which involved three young girls, in, as you said, in Wisconsin. 
back in May of 2014. So the three girls involved were uh, Anissa Wire, Morgan Geyser, and the victim, Peyton Lawson. Yeah, right. Yeah. So in order to understand why these girls did what they did, it's important to get a little bit of background on Morgan Geyser, who was kind of the one that influenced Anissa to carry out this horrible act with her. So Morgan was born on May 16th of 2002. And from a very young age, according to her parents, she lacked all empathy. She had no empathy whatsoever. Her parents were surprised by her reaction when she saw the Bambi movie for the first time. Her mother recalled, we were so worried to watch it with her because we thought she was going to be upset when the mother died. But the mother died and Morgan just said, run, Bambi, run, get out of there, save yourself. She wasn't sad about it. And normally with that scene, like I have little cousins. And when we will watch that, I was forced to watch that movie when I was younger with them. That scene came around and they were super sad. They were crying. But apparently... To her parents, she really didn't give shit, had no empathy whatsoever. They say that Morgan was quiet, creative, and had qualities that drew her future victim, Peyton, to her when they met in the fourth grade. So when the two girls met, Peyton and Morgan, they instantly hit it off. Geyser later described Lutner to police as my only friend for a long time. and. Lutner remembered Geyser as her best friend, saying that she was funny, she had a lot of jokes to tell, she was great at drawing, and her imagination always kept things fun. But what's interesting is that in the sixth grade, when Morgan Geyser befriended a a classmate named Anissa Wire, Geyser and Wire developed an obsession with Slenderman, a fictional creature with a featureless face and tentacles that became the star of internet memes and creepypasta tales in 2009. Peyton Lutner told Morgan Geyser that she didn't like the Slenderman character. She didn't want anything to do with it. It scared her. Like, please don't talk about it with me. I don't want anything to do with it. But according to Peyton, Morgan Geyser really liked the character and actually thought it was real. First of all, let me say that the victim, like I, okay. When I first heard this story, my initial thought was like, I I heard about the stabbing, like the, the act of the stabbing and like the girl got stabbed 19 times. And I'm thinking like, well, two little girls or two young girls trying to stab another young girl. And it's terrible and it's a really bad thing. But in my mind, I imagine like the shit that we would deal with in like high school or something years ago, where if someone's, you heard someone stab somebody else, your first thought as a kid is, oh shit, someone took a long knife and stabbed someone in the school. But then you find out later that the stabbing was just someone took a ballpoint pen and they like tried to stab them in the arm or something. So it wasn't as bad. So that's actually, it's funny. That flipped around in my mind just now before I learned about the actual story. When I heard about it first, I was like, oh, they they probably just tried to stab her with a pen or something a couple of times and like they got in trouble and it was really bad, but it wasn't that terrible. No, this shit was terrible. They had a full knife, like a legit five inch knife, and they actually plunged it into. I know it's disturbing. They actually stabbed this little girl for real, and they actually hit several, 
a couple uh, major organs. They, they, they hit two organs. major organs. organs. They missed a major artery next to her heart, which would have instantly killed her. And they actually cut into her diaphragm as well. So this is, these were really serious wounds. And but I'm also reading that the little girl, by the way, like she survived. To be clear, she crawled by herself uh, a while till she was found by somebody, and they took her to a hospital. And the the girl, even though she had serious, serious life-threatening wounds, she ended up leaving the hospital seven days later. That's crazy to me. Like, how do you only spend seven days in a hospital having like 19 stab wounds? That's that's bonkers. But so the creepy thing about this story, like you were saying, like one girl felt the wire girl or whatever wire girl felt um, remorseful after, but the the guy the geyser. Uh, girl, she actually is still institutionalized and she actually believed in Slenderman. And I guess their, their goal after the stabbing was to go find the, and I quote, go find the Slenderman in his mansion. And apparently they believed the mansion was in the woods somewhere and they were going to go on this like 200 mile trek. That would be interesting to find out like why they thought his mansion was in this particular location and what they expected to do after they got there. I think it's based off of the fact that multiple variations of the Slenderman lore has like him living deep in the woods. So that's where that would have come from. You know, what's even crazier about this whole entire situation is that they plotted her murder. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. This was really thought out and it's borderline terrifying that a bunch of 12 year olds yeah. could think. So yeah, the other thing that, that, that this reminds me of, and I know this, the, I mean, what I'm going to bring up is not really comparable in a lot of ways because it was so, it was so heinous and really bad. And I actually remember it very clearly. I'm sure you remember it too, because we were young when this happened, but the Columbine incident was like, what was that? Like the ver- I think it was the first mass school shooting. And uh, I remember learning about that in depth uh, at some point. So I, I might have gotten, get my facts wrong or whatever, but I remember the two boys at the time who orchestrated it. It just reminds me of the same story as this one with the Slimmerman, where they, they planned it for like a long time. They, they had it all set out in their head as to what they were going to do. And then they actually ended up falling through with it. So that, that is interesting that, like you said about how you can't imagine kids doing this. And I, I think it is different in, a, in one of the many ways it's different from Columbine is that, you know, the Columbine dealt with high school kids and um, they were older and, and more mature. Well, you know, th- like, you know what I'm saying, like older kids tend to be more mature. So they had, they had more life experience or whatever is what I'm trying to say. But two little girls conceiving of this seems way less conceivable. Like the Columbine shooting came, seemed to come from just really bullied or really like, like kids who were just really twisted with what some people thought it came from like violent video games or whatever, which, you know, disproven, I think. But this, the little girl story, the girls, the story with the girls and Slenderman, this came from the actual made up fallacy of the Slenderman. And this goes back into that vein of what we were talking about earlier, like how someone could see something in their reality and have it affect them in a negative way. Isn't that the same thing as the thing being real, except for the fact that it actually existed in real, like three dimensional space? So these little girls plotted this based off of Slenderman. They thought that Slenderman was real and they were doing him a service and they were going to go serve him or whatever, which is part of the lore. Like you were saying, they, you know, he had like the Slenderman has these individuals who serve him or whatever. So that is terrifying that that such a that's like a random modern story that has no basis in actual sightings or accounts evolved in, in, to to have an effect on children to where they plotted to carry out this really heinous crime 
Yeah. What's even more disturbing, I'm going to go into a little yeah. bit more detail. Anissa Wire told the police that they plotted her murder for months and they would actually talk about it in public and they would use code words like cracker while talking about using a knife and itch while discussing the actual killing. Their motive, like we said, revolved around Slenderman. And like you just mentioned, they thought that they would appease him by killing Peyton and that he would let them live in the the forest mansion with him if they actually went through with the killing. And they believed that if they didn't kill the girl, that the Slender Man would come and kill their families. Oh, shit. Yeah. On, on May 30th, 2014, which was, I believe geyser's birthday that's or they held like some sort of slumber party for uh morgan geyser's birthday they invited peyton over and they told the two girls morgan and anisa told the police that they had multiple ideas of how they wanted to kill peyton they thought about duct taping her mouth during the night and stabbing her in the neck but they were too tired after a day of roller skating I'm sorry, that's just fucking insane. Ah, I'll kill you tomorrow because I'm too tired today. So the next day, they plotted to kill her in a park bathroom so the blood could go down the drain. Like, this just fucking baffles me. I have to stop for a second. That two 12-year-old kids are planning out this murder of how to dispose of the blood, how to make it look like an accident, what's the easiest way to kill her. It's just it's, insane. It's also, it's also scary that children can be that into, like, that, see, that's that's what adds an extra degree of, like, mystery and creepiness to this story. It's almost like they were being coached, you know, by by someone who knew what they were doing. Uh, I don't know if we should treat this more as just a really sad story or actually tie it, but you know what I mean? Like the, it is strange to be that, that, that children of that age who were seemingly, they didn't sound like they were, uh, anything above and beyond academically. They just seemed like two average girls, you know, not dumb, not smart, but you know, pretty normal for them to come up with these ideas, you know, drain the blood in the middle of nowhere, like duck, whatever, like however they, and they had code words. And, and you know, the creepy thing that popped out to me when you were talking about the code words is you said that they used the term itch to describe the actual killing. I have yep. to wonder, like, because because like you, you and I as, a, as an adult, like we adults, we can look at like the psychological thriller movies or whatever, like, you know, talk about like, oh, I had this itch to kill. You know, I, I it was it's like that's what that's how they describe people who want to kill. It's an itch like they like it's something that has to be scratched. So for two little girls to pick up on that either knowingly or unknowingly come up with the idea of using the code word itch to satisfy the idea of killing someone that seems like a really an that's an adult thing to an adult thought an adult level thought that that just baffles me it seems like an adult or some older person should be involved in coaching them for them to come up with this level of detail, but I might just be underselling kids are capable of because, you know, we, we were kids once, but I don't remember being that, you know, I wouldn't have been come up with that when I was, was a kid like that age. And so I also have to wonder too, like they pulled the lore from the internet. And one of the pieces of the lore was that if Slenderman wasn't satisfied by them, 
killing someone and he would have come killed their families. So that's the other strange thing is I, maybe the weir girl had some humanity left in her because she said she did. She only got second degree murder charges and she or attempted murder charges and she actually expressed remorse after that. So that's understandable. But the geyser girl, I wonder how much she actually believed, how much she cared about protecting her family. Because like you said, with the whole Bambi thing, like, you know, Bambi, Bambi's uh, mom was killed in the movie and she didn't really seem concerned about that. She seemed concerned about Bambi saving its own life. So I wonder why that motivation, it seems like she probably hid the motivation that she just wanted to do the killing as opposed to actually protecting her family from the Slender Man, like she probably wanted more to just go live with the Slender Man uh, than save her family. So maybe I'm wondering, I bet you anything, I bet you any money that Geyser came up with that portion of the story and she pitched it to Weir who had some humanity left in her. And that's what pushed Weir over the edge to carry this out to protect her family. So yeah, man, that's okay. This is kind of devolving into like a murder or like a, a psychological discussion as opposed to Slender Man. But it, this is a really intense story and I was not expecting this from the Slender Man case. Yeah. It's one of those kind of, I don't even, I don't know how to categorize Slender Man. Like I said before, I'll categorize it as paranormal. I think so. Yeah. It's paranormal. People say they have seen Slender Man, whether they're bullshitting or not. But I, I think with this case, this is one of those situations that you can't talk about Slender Man without talking about the direct influence that this character had on this incident and this horrible, tragic event happening. But what's interesting, when Geyser and Wire were caught, Geyser, without any remorse, asked the police, is she dead? Without any fucking remorse. Eventually, I think she was diagnosed with uh, some form of uh, schizophrenia because apparently she claimed that she could communicate telepathically with fictional characters like Harry Potter and the fucking uh, Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, schizophrenia to that to, to that degree. It's just unfortunate that someone with schizophrenia and and I didn't get a chance to bring this up earlier, but it's a good it's a, maybe a good time to bring it up now with the whole idea of like tulpas and like so we, we were joking around earlier about how like, oh, we materialize this $5 million man and he'll like come give you $5 million. That's kind of like a neutral to positive kind of idea of, of materializing a, a being. But so what are the strongest drivers of human nature? It's like fear. What is it? Like Freud said, like fear and sex or something were, were the biggest ones. But like, you know, fear is a huge one. And greed is another one. I think, you know, like really negative connotations you know, people want to protect themselves. They want to advance their well-being because it's innate, our desire to persevere. And some people take it too far. And that kind of like goes into this idea that we need to be greedy. We need to snatch stuff up and protect ourselves, et cetera. And we know that reality, thats that was our reality as humans for so long that we need to be fearful of people like that, fearful of of things and people that can take that away from us and actually damage us or kill us. So I think someone, it's unfortunate that someone like her with schizophrenia gravitated more towards that fear and, or, or maybe even overcoming fear through, you know, controlling uh, other people and killing other people. She gravitated more towards that side of like Slender Man, creepiness, murder, death, et cetera, as opposed to like gravitating more towards the happier side of like, you know, fighting evil with like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or, you know, Harry Potter being a positive force in the, in the realm of, um, of that story, you know, saving people from Voldemort or whatever. But I, I wonder the evolution of Slenderman coming from these fictional 
areas and, and, and being built up as tulpas through different iterations from um, of society. I wonder if that is, it's more likely that you have a negative outcome coming from a negative story as opposed to a positive outcome coming from like her engagements with TM, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Harry Potter. It's it's just an unfortunate fact of life, I feel like. So maybe that's why tulpas become more negative and maybe they're more likely to be seen as a real thing because they are driven by that negative human emotion that like, like for instance, that came out of this really unfortunate story with Slenderman and the stabbing. But there is a positive end to this case. Peyton yeah. survived and she was only in the hospital for a week and she ended up going yeah. back to school. So she got stabbed 19 times. She survived. She made it to two girls that did this horrible act, whether it was Slenderman or not, or if they use the Slenderman as an excuse because they just wanted to see what it was like to stab someone, they were sentenced to mental institutions, right? Yeah. There is a component that to Slenderman that we touched on briefly in the beginning, but I just want to revisit one more time because like you said, you don't know, you didn't, you really, you weren't really sure how to characterize Slenderman. And I think I, I tend to agree with you that it would be more of like a paranormal type of story because the components of Slenderman, like he has these powers of suggestion or, or like, you know, he can materialize or whatever. Like, so there, so there is something like beyond the physical state of existence for Slenderman, but it is intriguing to me that the depiction of Slenderman came about as it did. Cause growing up, you and I, like we, when I think of, mon- I don't know about you, but when I think of like monsters and scary stuff, I think of the traditional like fangs and claws and very, very emaciated or really just gruesome looking skin or, or there's detail, but it's, it's, it was, I guess after hearing about this case and the story and the overlap with tulpas and all that stuff and how, like when I originally, like I said, in the beginning of the, the podcast, I never really gave a lot of credence or paid a lot of attention to slender man. I just thought it was a stupid kid thing, but looking at it from a different perspective after the stabbing, it is interesting to me that this, that generation that formed and built up the lore of Slenderman was infatuated with the idea that he was so basic. He almost looked like a men in black kind of look like he's got the suit. Why does he have a suit? You know, like what, you know, what's the lore behind the suit? Like he must, he might, he must be a sentient creature that has some style or class or something. So I wonder why the suit came about. But the other thing that blows my mind even more is that he is featureless, which to me isn't all that scary. So I, I guess the kids glommed on to this idea that it's more terrifying to have a creature that is anonymous um, and that also has supernatural powers that you can't see coming, which is also a form of anonymity in terms of like power and, and, um, and danger or whatever. So whereas you and I, when we grew up, it wasn't necessarily anonymity that scared us. It was, uh, you know, seeing the creature with the claws come out of the closet, like ready to pounce on you. That was very clear. That was a very clear, like Chucky the doll, like had a knife. He he was very clearly detailed and terrifying in his own right physically. And I wonder if that's a reflection of like the time in which Slenderman came about where like kids are so, you and I didn't have cell phones until like probably high school. Even if we had, I didn't have an iPhone until I was like almost out of high school, I think. So, or actually even later than that, kids who came up with Slenderman, they, they are surrounded by that lack of ability to be separated from the masses and 
being on your phone and being a part of the community or whatever. So it's funny that the flip side of, of Slender Man is Slender Man is the flip side of that. The scary thing to them is the anonymity. And I wonder if that's a reflection of them being afraid of being alone, not being connected on the phone, being a part of something that's larger than yourself. And that's like Slender Man took on that role to fill, to be something that to be looked at, that that something that they feared. And maybe that's what these girls globbed onto, the girls who did the stabbing. Like they were subjugated, they were separated. They saw the only solution is attaching themselves to this entity of anonymity that protected them. And then maybe that's another degree of what a tulpa can be. Like it's it's the antithesis to a community or a type of people that that satisfies that fear as something you can look at and address. And then in, in that right, the tulpa, the slender man, whatever you come up with, the, the gross man from 1700s became a real thing in its own right. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Wandering Road. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, and most podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe and share. Also, don't forget to give a follow on Instagram at TWRoadPodcast and follow my TikTok at TWRPodcast. Take care, and I'll catch you on the next one.